0: Good morning. If you have a Bible today, I want you to turn to the book of Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we give away Bibles because we really want you to start reading God's Word. So just raise your hand if you forgot a Bible or if you would like to have one. We have plenty of extras. We believe that the Bible is God's Word and so we open it and read it and apply it to our lives. This morning we're looking at a really interesting passage because a person basically comes to Jesus and says, am I going to go to heaven or not? And I hope that you probably at some point have asked that question. Am I going to go to heaven? Is there a way to know? The Bible says that these things have been written that you might know you have eternal life. So I want to start with a couple things to think about. The Gospel of Mark is about clarifying who Jesus is, but then it's inviting us to commit to the journey. So the first half of the book, we've seen that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior who will be crucified for our sins at that point in in his life. But now the second half of the book is, what does it look like to really follow him? What does it look like to be a real believer? And last week we talked about a really important topic. Jesus spoke about discipleship and divorce and discipleship and children. So if you weren't here, really encourage you, you can go online and listen to the sermon. But this morning we have a man that's going to come to Jesus, and he's going to ask him, how do I know if I have eternal life? And you know, something that I've observed is that the Bible teaches that everyone's a sinner, but I've found that you could think of sinners in two categories, and you're one of them, and I'm one of them. There's religious sinners, and then there's irreligious sinners. Irreligious sinners don't make any pretense about going to church, or praying, or talking to God, or reading the Bible, or practicing their faith. They're just out there doing their thing. Maybe they say, I don't believe in God, right? Some of you probably know some of that. But then there's also religious sinners. These are the ones who sometimes are pretty sincere. They're they're trying to find their way to God. They're pretty devout. They, They try to do what's right. They go to church, things like that. This is what we have today is we have Jesus's interaction with a religious sinner. Now, A couple things, even if you're a Christian, you and I can learn how to talk to religious sinners, right? But in addition, we can also see in ourselves some areas that we need to grow. So let's begin in Mark chapter 10, if you want to follow along. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and he knelt before him. Now that's not pretty common for someone to come running up to you and kneel down, but it happened several times in the life of Jesus. Now, all Mark says is that he was a man. We learn from Matthew and Luke that he was young and that he was a ruler. And in this passage, we learn that he's really rich. So hence, he's sometimes referred to as the rich, young ruler. So this this guy has a lot of money and he's got a lot of power. He's young, but but he's he's got a lot of people under him, right? But what we're going to find is that he had a what we're going to call a self-righteous head, he thought he was a really good person, but a seeking heart. He's like, but I'm not sure if I'm going to heaven. So he comes and he says to Jesus, "Now notice what he calls him, good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What's the bottom line? What do I have to do to go to heaven? If you've never asked that question, can I encourage you, you should really think about that. You might say, well, I don't believe in eternal life. Well, that doesn't mean it's not real. Well, Jesus doesn't answer him the way we would expect. The first thing Jesus does is he says, you're talking to me? Look at verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you're like, Jesus, are you you messing with him? Why, Why did you say that? Well, I think partly because... Jesus is God. That's part of the Gospel of Mark. But I think he's trying to help this guy to understand. Did you call me good because you believe I'm God? Or do we have to to work on this? So then Jesus says, you know the commandments. Now you're going, wait a minute, Jesus. You don't get to heaven by keeping the commandments. But watch, Jesus is really... He gets right to the heart here. So notice what he says. He says, let's go over the Ten Commandments. You want to know if you're going to heaven? Let's go over the Ten Commandments, right? Now, see if you know the Ten Commandments. He's going to list five things here, but one of them is not one of the Ten Commandments. So see if, as you're reading this, you go, wait, that's not one of the Ten Commandments. So he says to him, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Verse 19. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The one that's not one of the Ten Commandments is do not defraud. Now, to defraud someone is to take advantage of them in order to get financial gain. And usually, the easiest people to defraud are people poor people, weak people who aren't able to defend themselves. This happens all the time in our culture, oppressing the poor, whether we talk about slumlords or, or people illegally acquiring land and, and sometimes evil lawyers taking advantage of people. Not all lawyers are evil, but, but you get the concept. And oftentimes, people who acquire a lot of wealth acquire it through defrauding, which I'm wondering if perhaps... Jesus is poking the bear there to sort of say, yeah, um, let's talk about all that money and land that you have. How'd you get it? But notice this guy's response as he listens to the Ten Commandments, verse 20. He says, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. You're like, did he just say that? Does he seriously think that he's never done any of these things? Doesn't he know if you lust after someone, you committed adultery? Don't you to understand something that it is possible to religiously deceive yourself? Even Paul, he said before I became a Christian, as to the law I was blameless. So, in order for him to understand what his real need was, Jesus says, "Okay, so." I guess what you're basically saying is, you really do surrender to me, and you trust me. Well, let, let's poke around and see if, see if that's the case. Now, notice what he says, because this is striking. Jesus says, one thing you lack, verse 21, go sell all you possess. Wait, what? Is that, do I have to do that to get to heaven? Do I have to sell all my stuff? Give it to the poor, and then Jesus says, but really, you're not losing it. You're just, you're just reallocating your assets to a different bank account. He says, because if you do that, you'll have treasure in heaven. And then he says, and come follow me. So go, and then come. Why would he say that? You're like, Jesus, so are you saying that the only way to get to heaven is to, to get rid of all of our stuff? The answer is no. He doesn't say that to everybody, but he said it to this guy. And we're going to talk about why. Well, how did the guy respond? Did he say, Well, man, I want to go to heaven. So, whatever it takes, Lord. Well, look at verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. You're like, Wait, I don't feel love for him. I think the guy's kind of a jerk. He thinks he's so good. Doesn't he know he's a sinner? It just kind of gives us a sense of the heart of Jesus. Jesus doesn't want people to go to hell. He doesn't want you to go to hell. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. The Bible says he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And there are times that people in their religious zeal were close. One guy, Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God, but not far is not going to cut it. Either you're in or you're out. And so Jesus said, Calls him out, and his response, this is so sad. It says, at these words, his face fell. And you'll notice, he went away, grieved. He walked away from Jesus because he was one who owned much property. And so Jesus was was getting at his heart. He's like, there's something in your heart that you need to be willing to part with. If you want to be a believer. Now, I would like to hope that maybe as he went and thought about it for a while, maybe, maybe he had a big change. But for now, all we could say is, wow, that's really sad. Now the disciples are flipping out. They're like, wait, what? Verse 23, Jesus looked around. He says, hey, 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 guys, check this out. He says, how hard it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, he, said, he basically said, money keeps many from coming to me. Money keeps many from coming to me. How hard it is. Now, that, that was so hard for the disciples to understand, because in that time, wealth, they thought, was a sign of blessing. God's blessing you, right? So this is a hard passage, because I'm going, do I have to sell my stuff? Can I not go to heaven if I'm wealthy? Like, we really have to wrestle with this. And then Jesus is like, you guys freaking out about that? Let me me make sure I didn't stutter. The disciples were amazed at his words, verse 24. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children. Now, notice carefully. This time he didn't say it's hard for wealth. He said how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God, period. Like, wait. I thought getting into heaven was free. Bible says, it's a gift. How can it be hard to be saved? In fact, Jesus said, let me give an analogy. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are people who say, well, back then they had this special gate into the walls of Jerusalem. It was called the camel's gate. And it was a little bit smaller, so camels had to kneel, so today most bible teachers would say that's probably not even true there was a gate maybe around 900 that they found but nothing in the first century so jesus wasn't going you know he's basically saying that they came to the right conclusion they go it's pretty much impossible then right and jesus goes yeah basically so look at how jesus closes this if that's not astonishing enough the disciples said then who could be saved Looking upon them, Jesus said, with men, it's impossible. Who can be saved? Nobody. Wait, what? Nobody left to themselves will ever be saved. It's impossible. But not with God. See, if God steps in, all things are possible with God. And that's far bigger than just salvation. Whatever you're going through, all things are possible with God. So you're like, Tom, I got a lot of questions here. Well, let's try to work through this and, and pray now that the Holy Spirit will speak to us. Lord, thank you for the word of God. This is a, a difficult but important subject, and I pray the Holy Spirit will help us to realize that this is speaking to all of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's start with this. Let's start with this man. He had a self-righteous head, but a seeking heart. So how do I deal with someone who truly thinks that they're good enough, but they're still seeking. And you need to ask yourself, are you a seeker, right? Do you wanna find God? Are you open, are you, are, you, are you in your heart of hearts asking, am I going to heaven? And maybe some of you have loved ones who are self-righteous, they're like, hey, I'm a good person, I don't smoke crack and I don't cheat on my wife, and I think I'm going to heaven. So three things I want you to see here about these religious people. The Bible calls this having a zeal for God, but lacking knowledge. Now, for some people, zeal's enough. I remember talking to Jehovah's Witness one time. He said, look, we're really zealous. We knock on doors. And I think God will let us in just for that. And I said, well, here's the problem. The Bible says there's a way that could seem right to a man, but it leads to death. When it comes to salvation, sincerity won't do it. If you're sincerely wrong, you're not going to be in heaven. So what happens, though, is what, do you, what happens when you confront a person who has a zeal that's without knowledge? Are they going to listen to the Bible? So there's three things that he didn't understand. Number one, he didn't understand his sinfulness. See, a lot of people do not understand the weight of their sin. Classic example. I ask people this all the time. Why should God let you into heaven? Most of them will say, because I try to keep his laws. I'm like, all right, so let's, let's try this again. Let's go through the 10. You shall not lie. You shall not cover. You shall not steal. Do you think those 10 rules are, are God going, can you do this? Can you do this? They're a giant mirror going, you didn't do this. The 10 commandments are primarily designed to show us just how bad we are, not, oh, keep these rules. In fact, one little boy said to his mom, he was always getting in trouble, mom, I'm not a bad kid if it wasn't for these rules, right? And you might think to yourself, I'm not a bad person. I mean, God's got all these rules, but I'm not bad. That's what the rules do. They show you and they show me, yeah, you are a sinner and you do not deserve heaven. I don't care how hard you've tried because you don't understand your sinfulness. But secondly, did he not only not understand his sinfulness, he didn't understand sin's penalty, See, many Americans think, well, yeah, I mean, if that's what you mean, yeah, well, yeah, we all tell a little lie, or yeah, you know, I probably had some bad thoughts, but I don't do any bad things. You have to understand this. The Bible teaches that the penalty of sin is hell, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Hell, not just, oh, well, you know, you'll be a Christless eternity. The Bible's very clear, the wages of sin is death. The second death, book of Revelation says, into a, a, a lake of fire day and night. That's how a holy God views the seriousness of sin. So I'll tell people, if, if, if you had one ticket a day, right? And you came to a judge with 365 tickets, and he says, okay, let's talk about the penalty here. Are you going to tell them all the good things you did? Well, I uh, helped a little old lady. I sing in the choir. I'll come to your house and wash your car. I'll meet you on Sunday. It doesn't matter. You've got a debt to pay. The wages of sin is death. And so this self-righteous person didn't understand his sinfulness. He didn't understand sin's penalty. But third, he didn't understand his need for the Savior's sacrifice. And that's where a lot of people are today. They don't realize that salvation is entirely based on the sacrifice of Christ. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And it's through Christ hanging on that cross and suffering that awful death and bleeding and dying, that's the only way anyone can get to heaven because Christ paid with his perfect sacrifice. And he didn't split it with you. He didn't say, I'll do my part, you do purgatory. I'll do my part, you do the sacraments. Jesus paid it all on the cross. He said it is finished. And so the first thing that this guy needed to see was he's a sinner. Secondly, the sin is penalty, and third, the savior's sacrifice. So Jesus then takes him having a seeking head, or a self-righteous head, but a seeking heart. The second thing I want to see here is, a seeking head and heart needs to be a surrendered head. And heart so the heart and soul of what Jesus is getting at is he's saying to this guy you have not surrendered to me in faith you have a huge idol in your life that is really your God and you cannot serve God and money so what we learn from this is that the way of salvation is a gift of God But it's not hell insurance. It's not God saying, hey, listen, go do your thing. Live however you want. Don't even worry about any changes in your life. Just raise your hand and Jesus will give you free hell insurance. Just say this prayer, abracadabra, Jesus, come in my heart. That's not the gospel. Jesus says, repent and believe. You, You turn from something to turn to Christ. And for him, it was this idol of money. But for others, there may be something else that's keeping you from coming to Christ. And the irony is, many people miss heaven because they refuse to surrender their heart to God's will. The Bible tells us that we must turn to God, that we must be willing to repent and believe the gospel. And so... Think about this, Jesus is going, go sell what you have, not because that's how you get to heaven, but because he's showing this guy, hey, you won't surrender to me. And and this is what keeps so many people from coming to Christ. I think we're naive if we think, hey, all I gotta do is tell him John 3.16, so I'm going to the end zone and I'm holding up John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. All right, you're in, right? To believe in Christ in the Bible is to surrender in faith and be willing to follow. This is why Jesus said, if your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. See, a lot of people want to keep their sin, be comfortable in their own life, but they also want Jesus. And he goes, you can't have both. You have to come and surrender to me in faith. Trust me, just be willing. So, as Jesus exposes this guy He's not telling him, hey, the only way to get to heaven is selling all your stuff. He's saying, but I do want you to come and follow me. I do want you to say, Lord, I'm willing. Whatever that looks like, I'm willing. And you need to ask yourself, is there anything that if the Lord said, I want you to follow me, I want you to obey me, that you would say, I I will never give that up. And then as you think that through, I want you to just do some math. Jesus says, what good is it if you were to gain the whole world, but you lose your soul. And so the third thing I want you to see here is that many people choose to surrender their soul rather than surrender their heart. And I hope that wouldn't be any of you this morning, that you would surrender your soul, because that's what this guy did. Once he heard the terms, he said, I ain't doing that. Because he wouldn't surrender his heart. So what does that look like? Well, is money bad? Is that what the issue is? Is money bad? No. But the Bible teaches that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So I want us to think about a couple of things. The reason most people aren't coming to Jesus is because they love their life as it is. They love their sin. They love their Burger King lifestyle, my way, not God's way. So there's two verses I want you to write down. Second, Thessalonians chapter 2 says this. Many people will not receive the love of the truth to be saved because they take pleasure in unrighteousness. They take pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, I don't want to give that up. Can I be a Christian and keep doing this, this, and this? No, you have to be willing to change. No, I'm I'm not giving that up. Well, God doesn't save people for giving stuff up, but he won't save you if you're not willing. Another verse, just four verses after John 3.16, it tells us why many people won't come to Christ. It says, this is the condemnation, that Jesus, the light, came into the darkness, right? But men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil, and they won't come to the light. So it's important for us to understand as you're talking to self-righteous people or sinful people, what is it that's keeping you from coming to Christ? Is there anything that you're unwilling to surrender? And if so, why would you surrender your soul simply for some temporary pleasure that you can't keep? But I do want to take a digression briefly here to speak to Christians just about the subject of money because it's important for us to understand a couple of things about money. Number one, money isn't bad. Money is neutral. But Paul warns Christians, and, and he tells Timothy, and as a pastor, I'm going to warn you, and I need to warn me. The Bible says, Those who desire to get rich, you go, What are you saying it's wrong to want to be rich? Listen to what God says. This isn't what I said. Those who desire to get rich will plunge themselves into many temptations and harmful snares because, he says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some, by longing for it, wander away from the faith. This is talking to believers, right? So think about this. All of a sudden, you get the idea that, hey, man, I'm in the land of opportunity. I went to college. I got a degree. Or I found out a way to make money. Is that bad? No. No. But the moment my heart begins to be fixed on getting rich, he says, mark this down. You are about to enter into a bumpy road of temptations and harmful snares which have plunged many people into ruin. Well, think about it. Something as simple as integrity. If I were to be honest on my taxes, I'll never get ahead. Well, if you're a Christian, you're to do the right thing, right? Here's another one. Why does the love of money draw people away from God? How do you make money? Most of the time, it's working hard. What's wrong with hard work? Nothing. But if your hard work becomes your idol, and you don't have any time for God, you blew it. Well, I have to work 70 hours a week. I can't go to church anymore. I can't serve the Lord anymore. I'm too tired to read my Bible. I don't have any time for my family. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and somebody longing for it, wander away from the faith. You can see how i have to check my heart and say hey why do i want to get rich and even when we say i just want to have a big house so i can have the orphans come one day a year to serve them lunch and the other 364 it'll be mine so we just have to check our own hearts so just be careful if you have this increasing desire to get money if you're a christian jesus warned against this he said some people receive the word of god and they're growing But all of a sudden, the desire for riches, Mark chapter 4, and the desire for pleasure and other things enters in, and it chokes out the word. They're no longer growing Christians. They've lost their way. And any one of us has to go, how much is enough? But there's another thing that's really important. You say, well, what if I am rich? Write this verse down. This is really important. 1 Timothy 6, 19. This is what Paul says to wealthy Christians. You're not a bad person if you're a wealthy Christian. Depends on how you got it, right? But but he says, instruct those who are wealthy in the faith. Doesn't make you a bad person, but he says, if you're wealthy, two things to note. Number one, he said, instruct them not to be conceited, okay? Now, it is not hereby an axiom that rich people are conceited and poor people are humble. We all know that's not true. We all know some wealthy people that are humble, and we know some poor people that are conceited. But you can see the danger of how wealth can lead to conceit, how wealth can lead to people thinking that they're better than others. And we've all probably experienced some level, maybe, of either treating someone who's like a street person poorly, or feeling Feeling the scorn of a wealthy person who made us feel like we're unimportant. As a, as, a, as a soul winner, I find that, and I'm not suggesting that we all need to go door-to-door, but when I have done door-to-door visiting, it is far more effective in poor neighborhoods. People are willing to open their door and talk to you. Try it in a real wealthy neighborhood. Knock on some doors and get see what the looks are. What are you doing? I'm not saying you do that, but there's... It, So number one, if you're wealthy, don't be conceited, okay? Number two, he says, instruct them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Riches seem stable, right? Riches seem like what makes us happy. If I'm bored, I got toys. If I'm fearful, I got money to get guards. If I'm lonely, I got friends. If I'm sick, I get the best treatment. The Bible says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches for a number of reasons because we all know it can be here today and gone tomorrow, You're like, no, no, not, not for me, man. I got it. I carefully invested. That's what everybody thought in the 20s, right? When the stock market crashed and many, many people took their own lives. So if you're a Christian, you and I have to always look at our stuff and say, if God has blessed me, I have to say, hey, what if he took it away? What if I lost it all? What if all my investments went down the tube and I don't have a penny? Can I truly say what the Bible says? Let your way of life be free from the love of money because Jesus said I'll never leave you, so be content with what you have. Can I truly say if if Jesus was all I had, I'd be okay with that because Jesus is all I need. So again, it's not saying sell all your stuff, get rid of it, it's saying check your heart. And we all have to do that. But the third thing it tells wealthy people, and this is a good thing, it says instruct wealthy Christians to be generous and ready to share. And that's really cool. And I think we have a policy here. Our pastors don't know who gives what, and I don't think they should. But I think we have some really generous wealthy people here, just because of the fact that statistically most churches, half the people don't give at all. Right? When, when I look at our budget and I see the different things that... that Wow, someone, wow, look at, so praise God, those of you who have been blessed with wealth, that's a wonderful gift from God, and it's a delightful opportunity to be a blessing and a stewardship. But here's where each one of us has to check our own hearts. You see, the Bible doesn't make a big deal about how much you give. A better thing to do is to ask yourself, how much do you keep? Right? Because Jesus nailed this perfectly when, when he was at the uh, at the church, and they were giving their offerings, which they would actually pour it into a pan, a big metal box. And if you were putting a bunch of coins in, it was like winning the jackpot at, at Chuck E. Cheese. So the rich people were dumping in their coins. Boom, 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 boom. And everybody's like, wow, look how much he gave. And one little poor lady came in and she threw two pennies in. Get out of here. And Jesus says, time out here, everybody. See that lady right there? She gave more than everybody else because she gave all that she had. So we mustn't flatter ourselves simply looking at what we give. Because for some people to give a lot of money may still be nothing compared to how much money they have. And for those of us who, who, wherever you are in that continuum, the Bible always teaches us to check our heart. I think Christians are very deceived when it comes to money. This is why I encourage you, Part of Christian discipleship is to be a good steward of your finances. Two things I think every Christian should do. They should know how much money they acquired, whether through work or whatever, and you should then test it against how much you give. And you should be careful with that. Keep records, right? Not so you can parade around, look how much I gave, but it's a way to examine your heart. If the Bible says, give generously, right? We can trick ourselves. Yeah, I always pull something out and put it in the offering. We'll we'll keep a record of that and then add it up at the end of the year and say, how much did I actually give to the Lord? You don't need to tell anybody, but tell your own soul. And then how much did I have? And then ask yourself, could I have done more? Should I have done more? Some people say, you should give a tithe. And I say, well, actually, I think if if we have good resources, a tithe is, is like, wow, can you go beyond that? Right? And then some people are desperately poor, but they're still trying to give. So I think it's just a helpful side thing to say as a Christian, Jesus poked around at our wallet a lot. He said, listen, be careful. He goes, a man's life doesn't consist of his possession. So all of us as Christians, I thank God many of you are being generous, but I want to encourage you as a disciple of Christ. If you're well off, be careful of pride, be careful of trusting in your riches, and be generous. But all of us, let's all be givers. We're not doing it because we have to. We're giving because Jesus gave his life for us, and we're investing, as, as Jesus said, treasures in heaven. But the last thing Jesus said here is where we'll wind down, and this is really interesting. So, so Jesus basically says, look, you got a, a self-righteous head with a seeking heart, but seeking hearts need to surrender But what we learn is that many people would rather surrender their soul than surrender their heart. But the way that Jesus ends this passage is fascinating because the disciples are like, well, then how's anybody going to be saved? And this is what Jesus teaches us. That the choice to surrender is ultimately sourced in God's grace. You're like, wait, what, what do you mean by that? The choice to surrender, anybody who surrenders to God and gets saved, it is sourced in God's grace. In other words, it's because God did something in your heart. I want to I make sure you understand this. If you don't go to heaven, and you don't choose to surrender and believe in Christ, it's absolutely your fault. The Bible makes it 100% clear. Men will be judged for their own sinful deeds, Jesus said, whoever doesn't come to me will die in their sins. But there's this mysterious thing that's clearly taught in the Bible, and that is this. If you do come to Christ, it's because God in his powerful grace awakened you and changed your heart. And that's why Jesus says, yeah, it is impossible. Left to themselves, no one will come to God. But with God, all things are possible. In fact, even that very passage, John 3 says, many people won't come to the light because their deeds are evil. But then it says this, those who do come to the light, they do so having manifested that their work was done by God. You see, the gospel of John goes out of his way to say, if you're not saved, it's your fault. If you are saved, it's by God's grace. John 1.12 says, if you receive Christ, you have the right to be a child of God. But the next verse says, it's because you were born, not of blood nor the will of the flesh, you were born from God. So as a Christian, if you have believed in Christ, if you have surrendered to Christ, then this morning, thank the Lord for his wonderful calling in your life. Thank you, God. It's not because I was smarter than the other bears. It's you graciously awakened me, even when I was dead in my sins, even when I was serving Satan, even when I was lost and blind, You brought me to that place where I came. Now, I understand for some of you, you're like, no, 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 that's not what happened. I remember, I was at Backyard Bible Club, and I chose to receive Christ. And I would say, yeah, absolutely, you chose to receive Christ. But the question is, why did you do that? Was it simply because you changed your mind? You who were dead in your sins made yourself alive. You who were blind took the blinders off. Or was it a sovereign work of grace that awakened you And you responded. So you say, well, well, what are you saying here, pastor? Are you saying then that people aren't responsible? No way. If you don't come to Christ, it's your fault. But if you have come to Christ, it is a work of grace. 1 Corinthians 1 says, look around, folks. There aren't many wise and noble that God has called. He says, consider your calling, brethren, because it is by God's doing that you are in Christ. Why? So that no flesh will boast in his presence. Imagine what heaven would be like. Man, I'm glad I was not like those morons. What are you up here for? Well, no, it's all God's grace. You've heard me tell the story of a turtle on a fence post. If you saw a little turtle on a fence post, his little legs, you might not know a lot of things, but you'd know one thing. He didn't get there by himself. And anybody who's come to Christ, you're a turtle on a fence post. It was by God's doing. And there's a mystery to that. But that doesn't mean the Bible doesn't clearly teach it. And so as we close, there's a number of things. I want to start with Christians. My brothers and sisters, you and I have to do idol alerts. We have to keep checking our heart for idols. When you come to Christ by surrendering your heart, That doesn't mean that idols never creep back into our lives. So when you read the book of 1 John, the Apostle John is trying to give Christians great assurance. He goes, these things have been written that you might know that you have eternal life. God wants you to be sure of your salvation, but he also wants to encourage us to to watch over our hearts. So for example, 1 John says, don't love this world and the things of this world, For all that's in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's all passing away. But those who do the will of God, those who have surrendered and trusted Christ, they live forever. So the last verse, many people pass right over this, the last verse of 1 John says to Christians, little children, guard your heart from idols. Guard your heart from idols. What does that look like? Well, ask yourself this morning, is there anything in my life that's more important to me than Jesus? That is the source of why I live. It's what I think about when I'm in my bed. It's what drives me. It's, it's where I find my fulfillment. It's what occupies the throne of my heart. The Bible calls that an idol. And it can, you're like, well, I don't use drugs. Well, it can be basketball, and I know it from experience. It can be Facebook. It could be your job, it could be your girlfriend. It doesn't have to be terribly wicked things. It could be the gym, it could be anything that so occupies me that Christ is no longer the seat of my affections. And you say, well, Tom, that's hard. Of course it's hard, but let me give you a suggestion. Rather than focus on turning away from the idols, focus more on turning towards Christ. Because as we see in Christ all of his beauty, all of his power, all of his love, all of a sufficiency, then we experience what one preacher called the dispelling power of a changed affection. When my affections are changed and I find in Christ such joy, it's not that big of a deal to go, oh, I need to cast down that idol because I find that in Christ it's so much better. Jesus told a parable to illustrate this. He said there was a man who was a fine merchant in pearls. He was a wheeler dealer. But one day, he found a pearl that was so beautiful, so precious, that he sold all that he had, and for joy, he bought that pearl. He didn't go, oh, I've got to get rid of this. Oh, I've got to get rid of this, and this can't be an idol. He didn't even think about that, because when he found in Christ this great joy, it dispelled those other idols. And so, Christians write about that. We sing songs like Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Why do I want God to take my heart and seal it? Because we sing, it's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And suddenly, something on earth becomes more important than God. And so in the great hymn, Whiter Than Snow, the songwriter said, cast down every idol, cast out every foe, and wash me, Lord, and I will be whiter than snow. So, To my brothers and sisters in Christ, let's continue to check our hearts for idols. The more I gaze on the cross, the more you and I have the capacity like Paul to say, whatever things were important to me, I now count them as rubbish. Cash became cow dung. He's like, I don't care about that because I've now found something more precious. It's Jesus and a relationship with him. But if you're here this morning and you're still going, I don't know. Number one, ask yourself, are you a seeking sinner? Do you want to come to Christ? Jesus said, strive to enter the narrow way. There's nothing more important than making sure that you're saved. And then ask yourself, is there something that's keeping me from coming to Christ? As you witness to people, this is what I say to them. Can you think of any reason why you wouldn't want to come to Christ? And sometimes they'll say, yeah, I I don't want to give up this or I don't want to give up that. Well, did you hear what Jesus said? He didn't say, well, that's fine. Just, just let me give you the hell insurance, and maybe we can talk about that later. No. He said, will you surrender? And so my question to you through the Holy Spirit drawing you today is, will you surrender? Will you say, Lord, this morning, I'm willing, whatever. Not about, I'm going to do this and this and this and be good and do this. No. You don't reform yourself. You surrender, and you believe the gospel. And so if you're not sure you're a Christian, you might ask yourself, If I were to die now and God said, why should I let you into heaven? Are you trusting in the sacrifice of Christ? Do you believe that it's because Christ paid for you? And are you willing to surrender to him? If you say no, you say no. Well, then may God awaken you to say, wow, you're losing your soul. You're surrendering your soul. Instead of surrendering your heart, may God give you the grace to change your mind we're here to help. If you want to talk about that, let us know. Trust that this passage from Jesus will be great encouragement to you. But we learn here that money keeps many from coming to Christ, but it doesn't have to keep you. It doesn't have to keep me. And thank God that the gospel and the grace of God can take the worst sinner or the best sinner and bring us to changing faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we close in prayer, I ask that your spirit will awaken sinners. I pray that someone here, maybe many here, will surrender to Christ. Maybe they're afraid of what people will think or they don't want to give up some sin, but may that become nothing when they realize that Jesus loves them and died for them and will give them power to change. Oh, Father, thank you that you're graciously working in us. May all of us see our own idols and cast them down And may we, by the Holy Spirit's power, keep fixing our affections on Christ. May Jesus become more and more precious to us, so it's easy to sing that we'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. Father, I thank you for those who are wealthy in our midst. Thank you for their generosity. For those who have been awakened, may all of us be moved to generously give, because we love you, Lord, and we're so grateful for what you've done. Thank you that you will get the work of the gospel done through the giving of the people of God. Thank you for the generosity of our people. And we thank you for your word in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.